Well, good evening, and please do be seated. Those of you who have been with us for the last few weeks will know that we're currently continuing a series through the book of Genesis. Uh, for those of you who are new, we are now in Genesis chapter 46. What's been happening up to this point is, is we found that Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, having been sold into slavery, has now found himself number two in the land of Egypt. We're at a point in the passage at which Jacob has had, also known as Israel, has had to send his sons into Egypt to buy food because of the time of famine. And we're going to end our passage with actually the whole family now in Egypt, where they will grow into a great nation, just as God had promised Abraham. So as we prepare ourselves to look at this section of God's word, let's pray together. Almighty God, shepherd of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we pray that this evening you would feed us with your word, that you would build us up and nourish us through it and point us firmly to your son and the blessing of salvation we have in him and now May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we start our passage here in Genesis 46, I'd like you to picture the scene from the very end of the previous chapter. Picture this, if you would. Here is Jacob. Jacob, by now, is an old man. He's a pitiful sight. He's old. He's aging. He's been limping for many years. He's had to bury his wives. He's, he's given up his favorite son for dead, and, and he's just endured two years of severe famine, and it's left him hungry. But to make matters worse, he's had to send all his remaining sons off into Egypt to try to buy grain to eat from the very man who still has one of his sons prisoner from their last trip into Egypt. And I think, I think we can imagine, can't we, the tension as they come back now from Egypt to their father Jacob. Has he lost another son to Egypt? Have they managed to buy some grain? Will it be enough grain? Will it be enough to feed them all and their wives and their little ones? Well, when they do come back, the news they bring is strange indeed. Joseph, they say. Joseph's that beloved son that Jacob had long since given up for dead. Joseph, they say, is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Or sudden numbness fills Jacob's heart. Sorry, what? He already feels that they bereaved him of, their, of his son. And now... Now they seem to be making fun about it. This is not the kind of thing you joke about, but, but they go on and they tell him all the words that Joseph had said to them in Egypt. And then he lifts up his eyes and he sees the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to bring him into Egypt. And he says he does. His spirit revives. It is enough, he says. Joseph, my son, 
is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. But for Jacob to go and see Joseph in Egypt means he first has to leave the land of Canaan. He has to leave the land that God had promised to him and his offspring some 90 years earlier as he was fleeing alone and destitute from his brother Esau. So I think we can understand, can't we, why, why before he finally leaves the land of promise, and this is chapter 46 in the first verse, he first stops at Beersheba to offer sacrifice to God. And that night God speaks to him, saying, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he says. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. It will still be hard for Jacob to leave the reassurance of seeing the promised land. Yet, do you see that God has given him now an even greater assurance? Something yet more certain than the physical land. He has given him the word of his promise. And so Jacob, much like us today, will journey on now with confidence not merely in things seen, but assured in God's sure promise of that which is yet unseen. And let me tell you, when he does go into Egypt, it is a major relocation project. Picture this. First you've got Jacob, this old man who has to be carried in the wagon because of his age, and then with him, all but one of his 12 sons, all of their wives, all of their little ones, all of Jacob's offspring, and then also all the livestock, all the flocks and all the herds and all the goods that they've acquired in the land of Canaan. Must have been quite a sight. And such, such a crowd. Do you notice this? It's a big contrast from what we saw when Jacob had fled all alone from his brother. In fact, although his descendants are not yet as numerous as the dust of the earth. It is going to take us 20 verses, verses 8 all the way through to 27, just to list all 70 of them. Well, on they go, and in verse 28 we see, on they go with Judah going ahead, and Judah's leading the way into Goshen, the fertile pasture land of Egypt. As they get close on into Egypt, Joseph Joseph, second in the whole kingdom of Egypt, stoops to prepare his own chariot and go and meet his long-lost father, Israel. When he meets his father, we read, he falls on his father's neck and he is weeping. He is weeping for a long while. What a, what a great joy and comfort it must be for him to see his long-lost father after so many years. And his father? How does his father respond to seeing this beloved son who he had so long mourned as dead? Now let me die, he says. Now let me die, since I have seen your face and I know you are still alive. 
Israel, the scriptures say, could not be comforted over the death of his son. But he has now received a deep and decisive consolation, the ultimate comfort. He has seen him still alive. Do you see, despite every twist and frustration, God has been entirely faithful to his word, hasn't he? Joseph is here. Now for Jacob, he knows he can die in peace. He knows his son will close his eyes in death according to his word. It's, it's so emotional and heartwarming, isn't it, to think of this reunion of father and beloved son. But it's more than just emotional. For just as a few weeks ago we saw how Joseph's dreams of his brothers bowing before him pointed forward to the day when the whole world would bow down before Jesus and worship him. The joy that sorrowful Israel finds when he finally sees his beloved son, also points forward. It points forward to the great joy that comes in Jesus, who will be the saviour and consolation not only of Israel, but of all the nations. Something we saw earlier in the Gospel reading, isn't it? Where in Luke's Gospel, we heard of another old man, Simeon, in the temple, and we read he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for God's promised comfort to his suffering people. And we see him, he's taking the infant Jesus up in his arms and, and praying words that echo these of Jacob, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. My dear brothers and sisters, know that we both can and should respond to God's Saviour Jesus with no lesser joy and peace of our own. Is he not also to us the comfort for every sorrow, the consolation of every suffering, for every loss? In Jesus, can we not too know we are ready to die in perfect joy and peace. For having died for our sins, we know he now lives. We know he now lives and longs to welcome us into his kingdom, where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. My dear brothers and sisters, how restful would our souls be if we could learn to pray like Israel and Simeon, we could pray, Dear Lord, I am ready to die in peace, for I know that you live. My eyes have seen your salvation. Well, having, having been reunited with his father, Joseph announces next his plans to settle the whole family in that rich pasture in Goshen, and we're now in verse 31 where he says, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they've been keepers of livestock, and they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What's your occupation? You'll say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that 
you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And do you know what? It goes exactly to plan. Joseph goes before Pharaoh. He brings five of his brothers with him. He introduces them, and, and just as intended, Pharaoh gives them the rich pasture land in Goshen to dwell, saying, this is chapter 47 and verse 6. Pharaoh says, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Isn't that a great blessing? For the sake of Joseph, mighty Pharaoh, has, he's invited this family of hungry foreigners to settle in the very best of his land, and even invited them to take a position as manager of the royal livestock. Next, Joseph brings out his own father, Jacob, and presents him to Pharaoh. And this is verse 8. Pharaoh asks him, How many are the days of the years of your life? The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, he says. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And he's right about the few and evil part, isn't he? If you remember what we've been seeing in our series through Genesis, how we saw, we saw Jacob starting off by fighting Esau even in the womb, and, and the struggle with his brother, the ordeal with Laban, the wrestling with God himself who put his hip out of joint, the burying of his beloved wife Rachel who died so early in childbirth. Yes, few and evil have been the years of his life. But through them, he has learned to trust God and his promises. And he's a changed man. And so he blesses Pharaoh in accordance with God's promise for his kindness to his family and leaves his presence. And they all go... Verse 11, to settle in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, where they would be provided for throughout all the years of the famine. I don't know about you, but does it seem that that might be a good place for the scriptures to end that narrative? It seems like everything's nicely tied up, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop here. For God, by his spirit, has one more important thing to show us before he closes this narrative, and that is what we see between verses 10 and 26. Here, we're not focusing on Jacob or Joseph anymore, but now on Pharaoh, because we are seeing how Pharaoh's treasury, his livestock, his people, and his lands are being greatly multiplied. It works like this. As the famine continues, the Egyptians... They have to go to buy Pharaoh's grain from Joseph to eat, but in the end, they run out of money. And so they have to sell their livestock to Pharaoh for grain. And then when the livestock is all sold, and all that remains is them and the land, they say to Joseph, buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And Joseph buys all them for Pharaoh as well, and, and he gives them the grain for food and grain to replant the land for harvest. But do you see what's happened? Do you see that Pharaoh now owns all the land and all the livestock and all the people of Egypt 
other than that of the priests. And all Egypt, this is verse 24, will now give him one-fifth of their harvest every year. And they'll do so willingly and gratefully, for they know Joseph has saved their lives. Do you see the Pharaoh, who had first treated God's people so well for the sake of Joseph, their saviour, he has been greatly blessed and increased, hasn't he? Before we move on to the application of our passage, I wonder, I wonder if any of you saw something really strange a little bit earlier in the passage. Something in verse 11. Did you see something strange there? What's the name of that part of Egypt in which Jacob and his family went to dwell? Keep saying Goshen, doesn't it? They went to dwell in the land of Goshen. But, but here it says Ramesses instead of Goshen. They're actually the same place. But, but this name Ramesses won't, won't be used until about 400 years later at the beginning of the book of Exodus. At a time when a different pharaoh will rule over Egypt. A pharaoh who does not know Joseph a pharaoh who would reject God's saviour, Moses, as he comes to save his people. A pharaoh who would enslave God's people and force them to build the city of Ramesses. A pharaoh who you probably remember would wind up cursed by God and utterly destroyed. Such a contrast, isn't there, between these two pharaohs. First, the one who listened to and honoured God's saviour, Joseph, and, and blessed his people, and was blessed by God. And, and then this other, this other Pharaoh, the one who would reject and despise God's saviour Moses and curse and oppress God's people, who God would curse and destroy. And if we think back to the promises to Abraham, it's exactly what God promised. Back in chapter 12, did he not say, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Do you see, yet again, God has been absolutely and exactly faithful to every word of his promise. And so Pharaoh, who, who blessed Jacob and Joseph and, their, and his people, was indeed blessed for all he did. But what about us? Will God bless us too? Well, seeing how he has kept all his former promises, we too can be certain he will keep the promises he's made to us. We know that as we honour and trust Jesus, our Saviour, and love his people, we can be assured of every spiritual blessing in him. After all, isn't this just what Jesus promises for those who love and honour his people for his sake? Does he not say, if anyone should give even a cup of water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, I tell you, he shall surely not lose his reward? Does he not say, of the last day, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me? It is just as Hebrews says, God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints, 
as you still do. And to be honest, we have far more reason to honor Jesus and love his people than Pharaoh ever had to honor Joseph and his family. Although it's true that Joseph had saved Pharaoh's nation from famine, Jesus has saved us from something much more serious. He has saved us from sin and death and hell itself. And not by mere wisdom and interpreting dreams, but by his suffering and death on the cross for our sins. As John will write much later, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So how are we to apply the passage we've seen today? I want to give you three applications. The first one is something that we should not do, a mistake I don't want you to make. Because it would be a mistake, perhaps an easy mistake, but it would be a mistake nevertheless to forget that although Joseph and Israel point forward to Jesus and, and picture him, the fact is actually Jesus has now already come. We no longer live in the picture. We live in the reality to which it points. And so this passage doesn't teach us to honor Israel and bless his physical Jewish descendants. It teaches us to honor Jesus to whom Israel points and all his people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And likewise, we should not expect that God's blessing will be that we will be raised up and, and made a rich ruler over Egypt? No. This points to our far greater blessing, this spiritual blessing which is in Christ, kept safely for us in his eternal kingdom where it would never fade away or perish. Second application is more positive because I believe that this passage should be a great encouragement to every one of us to look again of Jesus Christ and the certainty of his word of promise. Have we not seen, even here, all the way back in Genesis, how God has shown us Christ, who feeds and keeps us in life and gives us every consolation and perfect peace in death, the one who died for our sins and yet is still alive, the one whose promise is sure and whose word is certain, the one who loves us and who delights to give us the blessing of his kingdom? Well then, what else but that we too should honor and trust him above all, that we too should turn from falsehood and sin and live as his very own, fully assured by his certain word of forgiveness and eternal life by faith in his name. And then finally, my dear brothers and sisters, as those who I know indeed do love and honor him. Let us be spurred on by what we've seen to love one another and serve one another more in honor of him for his sake. Always remembering that whatever we do for the least of his brothers, we do for him. What would happen if we stirred ourselves up even this evening to start to truly love one another more 
especially to love those we don't really like for the sake of Christ? What, what if we sought out conversations over dinner deliberately with the lonely or the troubled or the ones that we frankly find quite unpleasant for the sake of Christ? What if we each made sure we did not leave church today without one small act of love to a brother or sister in Christ, however small, simply because they too belong to the God who first loved us and gave his son for us. The Lord grant us strength to love his people as he first loved us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the wonders of your grace and your mercy and your love. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people throughout all generations, for the certainty of your every promise. And most of all, we thank you for sending your Son, the Saviour, not only of Israel, but of the entire world. Pray that you would help us to trust and honour him and so love his people for his sake. Stir us up with that peace which means that we can leave this world in joy and comfort. Stir us up too to love one another as you first loved us in him. Amen.